Hey, real quick, turn to your neighbor and just tell them you look good today. Just need to know. You look good today. You look good. I like to do that because, I don't know, it just feels nice when somebody tells you you look good. Don't it? Just, I feel better now. Um, hey, honest to God, you, you see him up here crying like a baby. But his um, family right there. Family. Yeah, I met, he was 18. I was 24. I was a youth pastor. Um, I was with them when they, were, uh, when they were just dating, and they'd have arguments. They'd go on my patio for like a couple hours and argue about stuff. I'd go to Rick and Dee's house and go play video games because I was a youth pastor, and that's what I did. And so anyway, you guys are wonderful people, and I count you as family now. Uh, I've been here at least once or twice a year since you guys started and love being here. You guys are fantastic, very warm, friendly group of people. So anyway, yeah, great, great church. Love you guys so much. But let's dive in. I have a great message for you. Usually, Pastor Aaron has me speak inside of a sermon series, so I have to like, I have to fall in line. You know, I have to just go with whatever the flow is. So I'm like, all right, what's the series? What do I, what do I gotta come up with? What do I gotta do? And he goes, there's no series. You do whatever you want. So I'm doing whatever I want today. That's what we're doing. So anyway, I wanna talk to you today about the power of a great conversation. Um, have you ever had a conversation that you can go back to and say, bam, that turned my life or meant so much to me or meant the world to me. I know people that their story is, I came to Christ because of a conversation that I had. At the right, I was at the right place at the right time, had a, a beautiful conversation, and my life was forever changed. I know some people made like strategic decisions about whether they took this job or went to that school or moved to this city or whatever it is, and it came about because of a conversation. One of my favorite conversations I look back at is a conversation I had with my dad the night before he died. My dad died suddenly at the age of 65 of a heart attack, and um, I didn't talk a ton to my dad. We had a good relationship, but I randomly, I randomly and oddly called my dad the night before he died, and what was weird about it was is I called him super late. So I live in California, but I'm from South Carolina, and so my dad's one of them old school dudes that grew up on a farm, so they go to bed, they drink warm milk, and then go to bed at 9 p.m. Anybody like that up in here? You like going to bed at 9 p.m.? How many of y'all like stay up late, like party till the cows come home. There you go. How many of you are married to like your, one of your spouses is early and one of them is late? That, that's my life too. What are we talking about? Anyway, so my dad, so my dad goes to bed at nine o'clock. Well, I call and it's like seven o'clock in California, but it's 10 o'clock in South Carolina. And my mom answers his phone. And, and, and I'm like, what are you answering dad's phone for? She goes, he's asleep. It's 10 o'clock out here. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I didn't even think about what time it was. And she goes, well, don't worry. I'll wake him up because she's in bed. Y'all ever do, wives, you ever do that thing where you kind of kick him or punch him or slap him or whatever? Do you do that, Erica? Yeah. So she said, Charlie, wake up. It's Todd, you know. And so uh, he stirs himself and, and he grabs the phone. And my dad was normally a bit grumpy and cantankerous and had a comment for everything. I don't know. Anybody married to somebody like that? Got a comment for everything. And I was waiting to hear it from my dad. I was waiting for him to say, you know, boy, you're so dumb. You're like a monkey trying to do a math problem. Something like that. That's what, that's what my dad would say. And he didn't. It was the weirdest thing. He was sweet. And my dad was not known as sweet. <laughs> but he was sweet. He was so kind. He goes, Todd. Because I apologize. Like, I'm so sorry for waking you up. He goes, Todd, I always want your phone call. I, you're, you're always, I don't care what time it is. I always want to hear the sound of your voice. You are my son. And I love you. And I'm like... Who in the world am I talking to? <laughs> Who is this person, you know? And that, and so we just had a pleasant little quick conversation, hung up the phone, he died the next day. 
But I got, to, I got to be at peace knowing that, like, no, I love my dad. My dad loves me. And my last conversation with him, our, our relationship was at peace. It was just a powerful thing. And so, anyway, life is all about great conversations. And the Scripture is no different because Jesus has powerful conversations with people. Like, he has this conversation with a woman at a well. Remember, she'd been married, like, five times, shacked up with number six. She's one of them late people. She's not going to bed at nine. And, and so... <laughs> And so Jesus is like, you know, you need living water. He's sitting at a well, living water. Um, Zacchaeus, he goes to Zacchaeus' house for dinner and a conversation and a hangout. And at the end of that conversation, Zacchaeus is like, I'm paying everybody back. I ever stole them and I'm going to give them even more. Let's go build the kingdom. My life is forever changed. Again, because of a dinner meeting, a conversation. Um, oh, there's a guy paralyzed, sits at a, a pool. And he's been sitting there for years and years and years wanting God to do a work in his life. And Jesus comes up and has one conversation with him. And his life is forever changed and his body is healed. It's just a powerful thing. Well, today I want to talk to you about what I believe, out of all those great conversations, what I believe is the most profound conversation. It's in John chapter 3. If you have a Bible, turn there. If you have a tablet, poke there. Do whatever you got to do to get there. You go John chapter 3, and if you're just like me and you don't go to church for the Bible, you just read it on the screens. So, John chapter 3, very, very famous phrase that we probably all know. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you've probably heard this phrase before, and it comes from this story. It says there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Everybody say a Pharisee. Pharisee. Now, Pharisees are normally like the bad guys of the Bible. It's like the Klingons, the bad people. Um, and, and this guy's a good guy, though. He's seeking out Jesus. But the other thing that you need to know about Pharisees were they were highly educated, very smart people, usually of a rabbinical line, meaning like they study the scriptures. And he's not just even a normal Pharisee. He is a top tier because it says he's a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. And the reason why he came by at night was because he didn't want anybody to see him. He was trying to go hang out with Jesus on the down low. He didn't want anybody to know because his camp wasn't on the Jesus camp yet. So it says that they came to see Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is what born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, that phrase has become a phrase, especially in like evangelical churches for decades and decades. Like, brother, are you born again? You know, are you born again? Are you born again? You need to be born again. Everybody needs to get born again. You know, it's that kind of like thing. But what's weird is, is that Jesus only uses that phrase one time to one person. We took it and made it a blanket statement and made it for everybody. But if you notice this about Jesus is that Jesus always caters the message and meets you where you're at. So remember earlier when he met the woman at the well and they're drawing up water? He uses that to say, you need living water. Everybody got their own flow. So what was special about this guy and this phrase called born again? That's what we're going to unpack today. Because this guy, again, a Pharisee, and what he would have known is this. you got to remember, these guys studied the Scriptures, memorized the Scriptures. They dedicated their life to the Scriptures. This is why later Jesus said, you memorize the, the Scriptures, and yet you miss me, right? So what they observed when they looked at what we call the Old Testament, they would just call the, the Hebrew Scriptures, they looked at and saw and they noticed a couple of observations, Ready? Right? Observation number one is this is that all throughout the Bible and all throughout life, you can look around you and notice that there's a tension or a struggle or a wrestling match between justice and mercy. Have you ever noticed that? You ever wonder, like, why is it that sometimes 
evil people succeed. Like, that doesn't seem fair. Why did they get mercy when I think they deserved justice? Why is it that sometimes the people that you think are the salt of the earth and the best people in the world, they get some weird disease that you can't pronounce? You're like, that's not fair. Why is it that the rain falls on the just and the unjust? Why? Listen, they had an entire book. It was called the Book of Job, dedicated to this struggle. Why is it that Job was a righteous man, but his, his entire life was nothing but pain and affliction? And the whole book is them wrestling with, why is it that there's suffering in the world? Why is it there's sometimes there's justice and sometimes there's mercy? And what they concluded was, is that justice and mercy have to operate in this kind of balancing act. Because what they figured was, is that if everything was mercy, 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 then basically we would ruin everything. Humanity is so corrupt and so evil, we would just ruin everything. But if everything was justice, 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 and we always got what we deserved, and we always got what was right, and we always got what was fair, we would cease to exist. We couldn't stand underneath the holiness of God, right? So there's this wrestling match. But Everybody say, but. But even though there's a wrestling match between justice and mercy, they did notice that God was way more merciful than he was just. And they had this scripture that they would point to. It's Exodus 20, verse 5. It says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. That's justice. But showing mercy unto the thousandth generation. So it's like, whatever, whatever, you, whatever it is that you think in terms of God's justice and judgment, just know that he's a hundred times and five hundred times more merciful than he is just. And we all said, that's a good thing. Now the second observation, ready? So there's a wrestling match between justice and mercy. Then what they did was, is they noticed once again, that if you look at life and very, very true of the scriptures is, is that of all the families in the Bible, they, 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 this observation came out that was very clear. You had two parents and then you had these kids and they watched the kids and they noticed that the firstborn always seemed to get justice, but the secondborn always got mercy. So let's say that together. You're just going to say justice and mercy. So the firstborn gets, and the secondborn gets, firstborn gets, secondborns get. Now, this is just true of life. How many of your parents out there real quick here? How many know like this is already true? Okay, my first, your your firstborn kid, you're real careful with them. You don't let them do certain things. You don't let them eat certain things. Like even like television, like you stuck them kids watching some old Carmen videos and tortured them, right? But then the second kid came along, and you're like, okay, Disney's fine. And the third kid comes along, and you're like, hey, here's Harry Potter. And the fourth kid, you're like, Freddy Krueger at seven. That's not a big deal. And you just kind of don't care. By then, you're like, I don't even want to be a parent. I'm done. And so the first one gets justice in the... So true of anything in life. We were talking about this with my family. Like, my little one was complaining about how, like, things weren't fair. I'm like, you need to hold on because you get to do things that your brother and sister had to wait so much longer to do. They get to stay up. I mean, all kinds of things. This is even true of my personal household. I am a younger. I have two. uh, There's just two of us, me and my older brother. And my brother always got caught. My brother always got in trouble. I always got away. (laughs) I always got away because firstborns get justice and secondborns get mercy. Yeah, I love it. So how many, real quick, let's just pull the audience. How many of you are firstborn children in your home? There's a lot of you. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And you're, yeah, it's bad. It's bad. If you ever wondered, now you know. Now you know why life has been so hard. Life has been so terrible, why your parents are so evil. Now you know, you know. Real quick, how many of you are secondborns? Secondborns? Living that life. Come on, living the vida loca. We're the late people, aren't we? Are we... 
Firstborns go to bed at nine. Secondborns go to bed at midnight. Uh. Why? We're just at peace. We don't care. We're living that mercy life, right? So, so firstborns get justice. Secondborns get mercy. And this is what they saw all throughout the scripture. I'll give you a bunch of examples. So early on in the Genesis account, there's this guy named Noah, builds a boat, rain comes, right? When he lands the boat, apparently he's so excited about his, his adventure, he plants a vineyard, makes a bunch of wine. Apparently it's potent because he gets he gets loaded, okay? I'm just not going to lie to you. He got so loaded. You ever told a story where like, look, I was drunk. I didn't know what I was doing. That's what Noah did. He got so wasted that he got naked. That's a story, right? So, and he's got kids. So he's got three kids. He's got Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Those are terrible names. Don't ever name your Some of y'all get into like naming Bible names. Skip them, okay? <laughs> Especially skip Ham because that kid's going to get picked on. And that's why Ham is the kid that exposed his naked dad, right? And so Ham saw what was going on and went out. And there's some weird Hebrew things going on there I won't get into. But Ham goes out and exposes his father's nakedness and makes a show of the whole thing and dishonors his dad. Now, the other two come in and cover their dad up. And when Noah wakes up and finds out what happens, he goes out to curse Ham. But Ham is a secondborn. Now, again, it doesn't mean just second. Second, third, fourth, ten, twenty, however many your mom made, right? So, so anything that's third, fourth, fifth, as long as you're not first, you're second, right? And so, um, so Ham is a second-born son. So when Noah goes to curse Ham, the curse doesn't fall on Ham. It falls to his firstborn son who's named Canaan, who's cursed throughout the rest of the Bible. <laughs> Watch. It, it keeps going. So, like, all these stories are in there. As a matter of fact, all of Jesus' genealogy, all second-borns. Think about Abraham, Isaac. Remember Isaac and Ishmael? Ishmael got justice, but Isaac got... Remember Jacob... Oh, oh, Esau, how I've hated you, but Jacob, how I loved. Because Esau got justice, but Jacob got mercy. All throughout the scriptures, Joseph is this way. So remember um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has a bunch of kids. One of them's Joseph. He's a second-born son. Joseph does a terrible thing. He calls a family meeting, which he shouldn't have done. That was the job held for the oldest brother, the firstborn son. He calls a family meeting, so he's already out of line. And then he's dumb enough to tell the whole family what his dream is. And his dream is, hey, everybody, I'm standing and you're bowing. And apparently in the future, you guys are all going to serve me. This is going to be awesome. How does that go over? Like, you're, you're totally hosed next Christmas. You're not getting anything good. It was so bad that they decided to kill him. That's how dishonored they were. They were like, let's kill this guy. So they find him out into a field. And they're like, hey, let's, let's take him out. So they bury a pit and they stick him in a pit. And they're eating sandwiches, discussing what they're going to do to him. You think your family's dysfunctional? <laughs> so they're eating sandwiches, figuring out what they're going to do to him. And they're like, hey, let's kill him. But one of the brothers speaks up and says, no, we shouldn't do that. You know who's the one that said we shouldn't do that? Reuben, the firstborn son. Why? Because he's like, heck no, because if dad ever finds out, I've done read this story. Firstborns get justice <laughs> and secondborns get mercy. And so they sold him into slavery instead of that because they just knew that whatever. So this is another thing that you find in Scripture, too. Um, if you grew up charismatic or Pentecostal, you'll have heard a phrase called the double portion. Has anybody ever heard that before? They'll be like, come on, yeah. You need to pray for the double portion. You don't want that. I'm going to tell you right now, don't ever pray that. That's a terrible prayer. The double portion is not ever, you never pray that. Okay, here's why. The double portion was the double portion of the inheritance that went to the firstborn son, right? And so what they did was, let's say you had six kids, you would divide the inheritance seven ways, and then the first one would just get two. 
But the reason why they gave him the double portion is to, pay, to basically pay and make up for all the crap that he had to deal with in life. So like big, big three things. Number one is this. The first thing he had to do is he had to administer justice to the whole family. So if there was ever family dispute, family squabbles, family fighting, he had to mediate all that stuff. Can you imagine like every time your family's in a fight, you got to come in and mediate that thing? Lord, no, I don't want to do that. I've noticed this too. I've noticed that white people are different about family than other people groups because California is very diverse and I have like, my staff is very diverse and then like they, they do family vacations or they live with family members. They call family members. We don't call each other. We don't even care. We're like, hey, good luck out there, you know? So I certainly ain't dealing with your squabble. I try to, like my, my, I try to avoid my family. I'm not gonna lie. I can say whatever I want because my mom listens to my sermons in California. She doesn't know I'm here. I can say anything I want. So, so the second thing that he had to do is not just administer justice. He had to receive justice. So if you had a family member that went out and like broke something or stole something or committed a crime and then maybe they went on the run, guess who had to handle that? The older brother. He would have to pay back the debt or pay back the fine or whatever it was. So then you had, to, you had to be responsible for all these crazy people. And then the third thing was the worst. They had a thing called the kinsman redeemer. And what this said was, is there was a law, and it was to, it was to help provide and take care of families. It was that if you had a son who died, the older brother had to assume responsibility for his wife and children. What? I don't even barely like my kids. I definitely don't like your kids. Can you think about, think about your, 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 your nieces and nephews? No, no, we're not doing this. We're not doing this. We're sending them to military school or permanent youth camp or something. I don't know what we're doing. We're doing something. So that double portion, man, that didn't go to like, so you could go to Cabo. The double portion went so you could go to Target and pay for some diapers. And like, I was going to, you were going to Walmart to take care of them kids. And this is what's even worse too. If, they, if, if your brother's wife didn't have a son, you had to provide for her a son. It's just, let's move on. Anyway, it's terrible. So you didn't want that. And so that was the dynamic of kind of the firstborn and the secondborn. But it's all throughout Scripture, right? So watch this. Remember the Exodus story when God's bringing the Israelites out of Egypt? There's judgment or justice coming on the land. And the tenth and final plague was something really, really unique. Now, this is the way it worked. If you took a lamb and you put the blood of the lamb over your doorpost and you came underneath the protection of the blood of the lamb, then you got mercy. But the, what, was, what was the judgment that came upon the land? It was the death of the firstborn son. Later in the Mosaic law, he institutes the same thing. He says, hey, whenever you have a herd, the firstborn of your flock is to be sacrificed. That is what redeems the rest of the herd because firstborns get all right, we lost it for a second there. We're going to come back. Let's try this again, everybody. So firstborns get, Justice. secondborns get. Mercy. So again, all throughout the scripture, even David, think about this. David and Bathsheba have another scandalous story. And in their story, they have a son. And in, in, in the way that it works was, is the firstborns got justice. Well, what happened to David in the judgment that came upon him? The firstborn son died. Who was the secondborn son? Solomon. So firstborns again get, so like, this would have been the pattern that they would have seen all throughout Scripture. Um, and, and just, you know, again, all of Jesus' genealogy is a bunch of second-born sons. And in, in the genealogy of Jesus, there's something really weird, okay? There's four women named. 
Now, normally you would never put a woman in a male genealogy, but they did it. And Matthew did it on purpose to kind of highlight some things. And all the stories are crazy and all the stories are scandalous. But there's one really, really in particular one. Everybody say Tamar. So there's a story of Judah and Tamar. And so the story goes like this. I'll give you the brief version of it. Is Judah has three sons. His firstborn son dies and his wife was Tamar. So here's what happened. In their, in their laws, you had to pass the wife on to the next son because that son now became the firstborn son. So pray your older brother doesn't die. So, so, so Tamar gets passed along to the next brother. That was how you took care of people in that day, right? Because so, you didn't want that woman to be a widow. You wanted her to be cared for and to be taken care of. And so they passed her along to the second son. Well, then the second son dies, and Judah is supposed to pass Tamar on to the third son. But he's like, no, I'm not doing that. You're a black widow. You're killing my kids. That's what you're doing. And not literally, but like, he's like, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not doing that. You got like a curse on you or something. And so Judah's supposed to give Tamar to the third son, but he doesn't. He just ignores the whole situation. Well, time goes by, and I don't know how many years go by. And so she devises a plan, and this is her plan. I don't think it's a good one, but it's what she did. She dresses up like a prostitute and is standing by the roadside, and Judah passes by, and Judah is trying to connect with this girl. And so he's like, hey, so what's the price of admission here? And, and she goes, well, it's a goat. It's a goat. Times have changed, right, ladies? It's a new jack city. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you better bring it better than a goat. I need some flowers. I need a ring. You better put a ring on it. Anyway. So, so, so he does one of these where he's like, well, I don't, have, I, mean, I, don't have a, I don't have a goat on me. And she goes, that's fine. Give me your signet ring and you go get the goat. So you know that phrase, who got your goat? That's where that came from. So, so he goes to get a goat and when he comes back, she's gone. So you got this prostitute that he done hooked up with running around town with his signet ring. This is not good. What no one knows at the time is that she got pregnant. So after a little bit of time, ladies, you know, it takes maybe two or three months before you start showing. And all of a sudden the town knows that Tamar and they're all like, hey, Tamar has become pregnant by way of prostitution. What do we do about this? And the answer was Judah gets to decide because he was the patriarch over that family. And so Judah shows up and is like, well, okay, well, let's just burn her at the stake. (laughs) And she's like, okay, cool, 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 cool. But before we do that, I'd just like to show you who the father is because I have his ring. So Judah's like, you know, pump the brakes. Because he knew, because again, they just saw this pattern already. They knew what the nature of, of life was like. They knew that with the same measure that you judged, it would be measured back to you. There's another famous rabbi that said the same thing, right? Judge not, lest you be judged for the same measure that you dish it out. It's the measure that it's coming back to you. And so they knew. So he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So what happens is not only is she pregnant, she's pregnant with twins, Okay, now this is where it gets story. Now, this is what makes it so weird. Why is this story even in the Bible? I mean, usually you'd like, all right, let's keep Judah's reputation intact. This is clearly crazy. Let's not put this in there, right? Like when we tell your memoirs, we're going to leave out the really crazy stuff just to protect you, right? Nope, not with Judah. They put it in there, and I think they put it in there on purpose. And here's why. It has to do with this whole biblical narrative that's going on. Because something very, very special happens in the birth story 
of Judah, Tamar, and these two kids. Ready? Let's read it. Genesis 38. Now it came to pass at the time for giving birth that, behold, twins were in her womb. And so it was when she was giving birth that the one put out his hand. Now that's weird. He's like, boop, you know. And the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand, saying, this one came out first. Why is that important? Because firstborns get justice and secondborns get mercy. So they want to know, well, you got, tw- you got twins. Do we know which one came out first? Or are we like flipping a coin? Right, they came out first. So now that we know which one's going to get justice and which one's going to get mercy, which one's going to get the double portion, which one's not, that kind of a thing. So they put a scarlet thread saying, this one came out first. Now watch this. This is where the story gets weirder. Then it happened as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly and said, or and she said, how did you, how'd you do this? How did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore, his name was called Perez, which means the breakthrough. And afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah, which means bright and shining. I think that the reason that this story is in there, because it has no other meaning really that I can tell, is that it became symbolic of this idea of how, again, firstborns get justice and secondborns get mercy, except what if there was a way? What if in a unique moment there was a way for the older brother to take to, to, to be pulled back in and for the younger brother to say, hey, let me take your place. I'm going to come out first and take on all the justice. You get back in there because I want you to receive all the mercy. John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to a man named Nicodemus who was of the Pharisees. They made up about 2% of the population and they were all firstborn sons. And he tells Nicodemus one time and one time only, you must be born again. You need to be born again and let me come out first and I'll take on all the justice and you come out second and I'll give you all the mercy. That's why you need to be born again. This is why, and it's, and it's laced throughout the rest of the New Testament because Romans 8 even says this. It says this in Romans 8, 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that Jesus might be the what? The firstborn among many brothers and sisters. This is why later Paul says that you are now heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ Jesus, meaning that you get in on this family, but you don't have to be the firstborn. Jesus has become to become the firstborn among many brothers. This is why Paul later talks about this idea of there's a first Adam in which all sin came, but there's a second Adam that replaces him, that he now takes on all the justice. So you and I get all the mercy. Can I get an amen to that? So all you that raised your hand earlier and said you're a firstborn son, you're free. You're free. Woo! You get to to stay up till midnight. We can do this. I want us to fall in love with mercy. I want us to like be so in awe of God, be so thankful of Jesus that we get to play the role of the second born child and let Jesus be that elder brother. He took, I don't know if you know this or not, but I owed a debt that I couldn't pay and Jesus took on a debt that he didn't owe. He took on the role of the older brother so that I could be free and forgiven. That's a beautiful thing. You got to fall in love with that. A whole life now. 
is nothing but gratitude. I don't live for the love of God. I live from the love of God. I don't live to see if God likes me. I live because God already is passionately in love and in pursuit of me to become that elder brother in my life and take that place of justice so that I can take. So if you're taking notes, what does it mean to be born again? It means to be moved from a position of justice to a position of mercy. Yeah, so now you know what it means to be born again. In light of that, though, so let's talk about that. Because there is an expectation on us now that if we are going to receive mercy, now we're expected to give mercy. Like, I don't want to be the person hoarding the mercy. You ever felt like that? You ever had a kid that hoarded their toys, hoarded the ice cream? Actually, this is what Micah says. Micah says, what is required of you? This is Old Testament stuff. This is old school. He goes, what is required of you is to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. Everybody say, love mercy. mercy. I hope you're in love with mercy today. I hope you see it differently. I hope you see Jesus as that giver of mercy. I hope you love mercy today. But you can't just love mercy for you and then not love mercy for others, because that's the trap. Have you ever noticed, this is so true, have you ever noticed that whenever I do something wrong, I really want people to forgive me? I want people to be like patient with me. I want people to be merciful with me. But when you do something wrong, I don't exactly feel the same way. Sometimes I want mercy for me, but I want justice for you. As a matter of fact, watch this. This is James says it so beautifully. He says, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Code four, I need to be a dealer in mercy. Because what I'm doing is, is every time I'm harsh, mean, critical, bitter, angry, unforgiving, what I'm doing is, is I'm telling God, this is the standard and the measure that I want to be measured by. No, thank you. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. But I love this phrase, mercy triumphs over judgment. I'm just telling you, mercy's better. So if I'm going to applaud and be grateful and step into the mercy that God has given me, God is in in, in return saying, now I need you to be a dealer in mercy. I need you to walk in that thing. I need you to love mercy and love it for yourself, but love it for others around you. Can I give you six things real quick here? Six just quick things, uh, applications of mercy. Number one is this, is be patient with people's quirkiness. People are weird. Have y'all noticed that? COVID proved we're super weird. Okay, some of y'all are weirder than others. I mean, there's a sliding scale. Some of y'all are super weird. What's the worst is, have you ever noticed like, like you'll find a Christian who's super weird and they blame it on Jesus? And I'm like, nah, I knew you before you met Jesus. You were weird and now you just blame Jesus for your weird. You were already weird. I'm just a truth teller, people. Um, so, so, but people are quirky. People, so my point is this, you're quirky and you don't know it. Your, your spouse knows it, but you don't know it. Just be patient with people's quirks. Number two is this, help anyone hurting around you. You're going to walk through life and you're going to find people hurting and struggling in life. Notice it. Notice it. Be aware of it. And then let your heart be empathetic. And then move. I love I loved what uh, Pastor Aaron was talking about earlier when he was talking about because um, every time I come here, you start talking about projects that you're doing and ways that you're helping people in the community. You have ministries of mercy where you just say, hey, look, let's go find hurting people because that's what mercy requires of me. Number three is just give people a second chance. I don't know about you. Is anybody in here like a late bloomer? Took us two, three, four times to figure it out. Okay, good. I needed a second chance. I needed third and fourth chances. 
you know, Pastor Aaron even shared his story of like, no, I was inviting him into ministry. And he goes, no, I don't want it. No, thank you, whatever. And he's here because of a second chance. Let me tell you this. The only reason I did that is because my pastor did the exact thing for me. That's the only reason I do it. Why? Somebody did it for me. Number four is this. Be kind to those who offend you. It's so easy to take offensive people and then to return that kind of nastiness and ugliness and offense. Be kind to them. Number five is this. Build bridges to the unpopular. Like there are people who are on the outside who would love to be in. Go love those people. And then lastly, number six is this. Value relationship over rules. That's hard for some of you. Depending on your test, hard for some of you. Let me help you real quick here though. Every time God forgives you of any sin, God is choosing the relationship over the rule that you broke. God is choosing you. God is choosing fellowship with you. God is choosing communion and connection with you over the rule that you broke. He's willing to get over the fact that you broke the rule if you'll come back into relationship with him. That's how much it matters. Can we be people of mercy today? Come on, bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Heavenly Father, we thank you today that we are the receivers of mercy, that we get to walk in your mercy. God, we thank you that we can live that life as a second born and know that you took on all the judgment and all the justice. We thank you, God, that even though you knew no sin, you became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And because of that, we are all now new creations in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. But now in light of that, God, you are redeeming all things back to you and giving us that same ministry of reconciliation because that's what you've always been doing. In Christ Jesus, reconciling the whole world back to you, not counting men's sins against them. And so, God, today we fall in love with mercy, but God, help us to fall in love with giving mercy as well, because mercy triumphs over judgment.